Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast. I am super excited to have an old friend of mine, Jackie Mori. She is Dr. Jacqueline Ford Mori, and she's early in virtual reality as a creator, developing techniques in the medium to deliver meaningful and emotional experiences. She has advanced degrees in both fine arts and computer science and serves on the boards of several future-oriented immersive media companies. She's a senior technical advisor to the recently awarded ANA Avatar X Prize, which challenged teams to build physical robot avatar people could inhabit from a distance. Her company, All These Worlds, consultant and builds immersive environments for a wide variety of clients. She enjoys sharing her expertise in the classes she teaches at the Otis College of Arts and Design at UCLA. So without any delay, I'd like to welcome Jackie. Thank hey, you, Jackie. Dylan. <laughs> it's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. It's, it's been a minute since we talked and um, I'm excited to catch up with you, see what you've been up to. And, and learn all these things. We recently were going to have you scheduled to come on here, but you're going to be at a festival recently um, going on even just as soon as tomorrow over at UCLA. Let's, let's start things off with there and just talk about what that festival is. And then we'll, we'll go back into the conversation of like, how'd you got into VR and all that stuff. Sure. The festival is the Five Rs Festival. Um, it's a festival of immersive VR and AR works, um, including a lot of experimental things. It really has all kinds of formats, and it's been going on for several years. It was conceived of and started by Kiram Maleki Sanchez uh, in Toronto. So it actually was, he says, it's kind of like Indicate and the Toronto Film Festival together. Uh, so it really has this experimental aspect where not every piece has to be perfect, but it has to be pushing the boundaries somehow. And so there's everything from 360 to fully immersive VR to things that are a little on the edge that might be part film and part interactive and part um, strange perspectives into something. Uh, it's really, really unique. And they uh, document everything. And so it is the best snapshot of the immersive content world every year that I've ever seen. And it's it's a lot of work. So it's been going on for about a week in Toronto. It's doing its LA uh, one day tomorrow at UCLA. And so some of the creators from this region will be there to show their works and talk to people. Um, my piece in that is a very simple piece. It is a, kind of a historical autobiography. It is a virtual world that you can go into. The contents of the world are a house that I used to live in in Northern Florida. So a simplified model of a hundred year old house with seven gables and a big wraparound porch. And in that house was where I started with computer graphics. So this, we're talking about 1981-82. I bought myself an Apple II computer uh, around that time. And I had taken one programming class in my undergraduate uh, years, getting a fine arts degree. I took one computer class. And I took it because I really thought computers were awful and they were going to kill society as we know it. And then I really liked it. So uh, I was, I, I converted myself. 
Uh, so I bought the Apple II when it came out and I played around with it. I did some programming. I did some uh, graphics programming with simple programs that were out then. And then there were a few graphics creation programs like Utopia Graphics by Todd Rundgren. And I was able to play with those and make images. What I ended up doing with that, I was getting a photography degree. So I'd been doing experimental photography and I'd been doing beautiful black and white prints. But I took an extra year to see how I could use this computer as part of the image making process. So I was making very pixelated images. I think the resolution was 190 pixels across or something like that. I mean, and I call this piece in the Five Arts Festival when pixels were precious because they were. And they were, you know, you talk about the screen door effects with virtual reality headsets today. Well, I don't even know what you would call that. The, the screen was massive. <laughs> so it was very limited resolution. You could get four colors at a time on the screen and then you could switch to the other four colors. You had a total of eight and that included black and white. So I made these really um, simple graphics, but what I did with them was take them into the dark room. I, I would take a picture of the Screen, the monitor, which was very curved. So I would have to take a telephoto shot from the back of the room to flatten out that curvature on these old CRT screens. And then I, so I would have slide images of this, of these pixels, these beautiful glowing pixels. And I would take them in the dark room and I would double print sepachrome paper. So I could have a very pixelated like castle and I could print a photographic image of a person in that castle. So it was Photoshop before Photoshop, long before Photoshop. And I did a series of about 19 of those for my master's thesis in, in photography. Um, and what I did for the five arts piece was put those inside this house that I lived in when I was doing that work. And you can go up to each image and you can press a, a button and you can hear me talk about that image for a minute or so. There's also a table with the Apple II computer on it, a model of the Apple II computer. And I talk about using that and uh, some of the new graphics tablets that were just coming out at the time. So it's just a little kind of a autobiographical piece, uh, nothing, nothing earth shattering, nothing experimental like many of the pieces in five hours. Yeah, that's incredible. That Photoshop on hard mode is what you're talking <laughs> about right there. That's incredible. Analog <laughs> Photoshop. Yeah. And it was like 190 pixels across. I mean, I think it's like 51 or something like that, favicon. So what, what you see in the top <laughs> corner of the little tabs on, on a web browser, yeah. you, you, you basically had three of those across. You know, you could almost have that for your elements. Now, what you're talking about, what's interesting, you're this, what's it called, FIDAR is the name of that immersive uh, conference event that you're going to. What's interesting about that is it's kind of like half art exhibit, half interactive experiment. It's, it's, it's weird how virtual reality and this new type of medium is almost blending together this kind of interactive expression for artists to really communicate feelings, thoughts, emotions, histories, all of those things tangled together in, in a way that they couldn't really express before, right? So 
what have you noticed in terms of the, the new ways that people are able to express themselves using these mediums? Like, what have you seen people being able to get across that they couldn't you be able to get across without using this medium? The, the one thing that VR gives you is mm. that quality of immersion and embodiment. So you can surround someone with a world that they could not experience any other way. And actually the way I got into virtual reality, I, I said I was a fine artist, but I'd always mm. been interested in the science aspects of things. So I was making these box assemblages, these physical constructs, and I kept designing them bigger and bigger till all of a sudden they were room size. And you know, you, I've got hundreds of these packed away in trunks, but when they started getting that big, it was like, well, I can't build these because where am I going to put them? Where am I going to store them? And then I was getting into the computer graphics. Uh, after the Apple II work, I started 3D modeling and doing some animation and 3D modeling. And I realized I could build these constructs and I could build them in a way that they seem to be immersive. Now, we're still not talking VR here. We're talking... Uh, modeled images that I would then take stereo slides of. So I would do a render with one eye and a render with the other eye, and I would show them in stereo uh, little slide viewers. Almost like the Viewmaster, right? Yeah, it, yeah. So you would hold that up to a light, and I would have a little installation, and they were all computer graphics, 3D images that I had made, and they were very um, almost surrealistic in in many ways. So I would bring in elements that were meaningful to me, and then you could kind of see them in 3D. And then VR came along. And I went, I can put this stuff in VR, and I can actually surround you and control what you're seeing. You're not in a gallery anymore looking at a stereo viewer. You are actually inside the world, and the other world doesn't exist for you anymore. And for me, that was a way to con control the experience so that what I was trying to convey was actually the center of that participant's world. Mm. Very interesting medium for that. that. So being able to actually put someone into a perspective, put them into a feeling of as if they were that person or as if they were there, did you have a mind-blowing experience? I've noticed this with people that have VR. There's a moment when people try it out. They're like, you try it out and you go, oh, wow, this is possible. Did you, I, I had that, you know, but I'm more of the earlier generations with Kickstarter and that kind of stuff with the Quest. For you, what was your mind-blowing VR experience if you had one? I did not have one at the beginning. So I don't even remember my first VR experience. I thought it was, it was cool, the, the stuff we were doing. This was 1989. I managed to park myself at a laboratory in Orlando, Florida that was just getting started doing some VR work and looking at things that might affect the sense of presence. But we were also doing really simple things like what's your what's your vision in a in a, a virtual reality experience. So we had eye charts in there. Uh, those early days, you were legally blind. So, <laughs> you know, we did prove that. Uh, again, I think maybe by then it was 640 pixels that you were seeing in the headset. But none of these experiences meant anything to me. So you could fly around 
the performer town uh, world on the SGI computers, the biggest you know, graphics computers of the time, but there was no there there. I really felt that these places had some kind of spatial presence, but no kind of emotional presence. And that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to give people the kind of emotional experience that my other artwork had done. So even looking at stereo slides, you would get this emotional understanding of where I was coming from in those images. Um, but VR didn't give me that. So I did my day work. We did, you know, we built things like the office building we were in and did experiments of uh, whether or not a VR representation of that office building would help with wayfinding better than photographs or better than a physical walkthrough. So we did studies like that. But after hours, I partnered with uh, another person in the lab, a researcher named Mike Goslin, and he had been a psychology major and I'd been a fine art person, but we used all of the Army's test beds that were in this lab to create environments that evoked emotional responses. And it was really early. So we would like, okay, we wanna see if this one can, can evoke angst, or we wanna see if this one can evoke calmness or, is this one going to be able to evoke fear? So for that one, we did this 30-foot high spider, which was kind of cartoony, and it was on a blood red background, and you could see the spider web. And mostly that wouldn't do much for you. But we played with a lot of psychological aspects that we knew worked. So one of the things we did was called entrainment. We had fully 3D spatialized sound with the, uh, a device called the Convolvatron. And we were able to put a heartbeat into this environment. And we gave the spider eight different states. And they, they could be randomly generated. If you like went up to the spider, it might attack you or it might run away. It had eight states. Each of those eight states was tied to a heartbeat rhythm, slow, medium, fast. And we found that when the heartbeat was going very, very fast, people got very scared. We had people rip off the headset because they couldn't, they couldn't take it. They just couldn't take it. But you know, some of the other environments were a little more calming or haunting. And that is what we showed at the Florida Film Festival in 1992, 93. Um, and that was the first VR ever shown at a film festival. It was called Vertopia. And so we had about eight different worlds uh, that you could pop into with a very expensive headset. It was a $100,000 headset. Um, by Envision, and uh, we borrowed that, of course. We didn't buy it. And we had these test beds that the Army was doing. We were still doing a lot of coding to make these worlds. But it was we figured we were onto something when people had the reactions that we wanted them to have. And so that's been the trajectory of my working in VR um, for all these years, just trying to see what works, what are the things that we can use that we know of maybe from other media, like cinema, like um, even narrative books or from uh, games. What are the things that we know will, will create a particular response if you do it well? And so that's what I've been working on. And then after that, it was more into multi-sensory. 
stuff. So looking at haptics and at scent and how those things can also enhance that emotional response that you have in a virtual world. With an emotional response, you've got something that's memorable. You've got something that may have meaning to people. And so to me, just having a, a, an empty environment in a VR thing may be cool, but it's not that great. Mm. So interesting. It sounds like what you stumbled on for a moment there was a virtual reality exposure therapy for a brief second, showing people spiders and having them jump out and rip off their headsets and probably got a bit more desensitized to that over time. <laughs> and uh, what's interesting is we're talking about, you go from the areas of practicality. Okay. This is, you know, you can, you can visualize, you can see elements, but really want to give people emotional feelings. Cause essentially that's what we all seek. We, we seek an emotional response, why we watch entertainment, why we, you know, watch motivational videos on YouTube or whatever it might be is we're seeking that emotional response. And you said you, you're looking for things that you know would work. You're looking for things that you knew would have an effect. In your years of doing this, or decades in doing this, what have you seen as consistent patterns to create an evoking an evocative experience? What have you seen? Okay, if we do these types of things in virtuality, this will almost guarantee to create an emotional response. There's so many, um, there, there's just too many to, to enumerate right now. Big there ones. <laughs> are things that we get out of film. So when I, I did a very big uh, piece at the Institute for Creative Technologies, which was a research arm of USC that I helped get started back in 1999. And I was there for 14 years as a senior scientist and we, had leeway for a few years to build a virtual reality world that would test out all of these ideas. And it's not just what happens in the world, although for the kinds of things we wanted to do, my team looked at psychological thriller movies. Um, we, we went to Disneyland. We looked at, you know, soaring over California. We looked at uh, the dark rides. We looked at the things that really caused emotional responses in people. And we tried to extract what those things were. Um, now, you know, Disney Imagineering knows how to do this very well. And there's some really great uh, history about how they, they approach building these architectures of reassurance. So we, we stole from everybody. We stole from psychology. We stole from therapy. We stole from movies. We stole from, um, you know, just how do you put people on the edge of their seat for suspense? And so we built this, this kind of pseudo military thing it was uh you were a forward observer at night and you had to decide if this abandoned mill complex across the river was being held by paramilitary forces or refugees and you had to go through this long dark dank tunnel to get there and there were clues throughout the tunnel that it could be one or the other so it was about equal number of clues um one of the things that we learned is that the scaffolding, the way you go in, what you know when you go into a world really impacts the way you receive that world. So we decided to do a study where half of the people were told they were going into a fun game, 
Larry got to tell them about the fun game and the mission. And half of the people uh, were told they were going into a serious military mission and they had to drop a GPS device there if it was the paramilitary forces so that a strike could be called in. Well, what we found out was it really matters who's going into the world because not one of the people that we tested from the civilian population could treat it like a military mission. They just did not have anything in their background to do, do it that way. So we ended up having to take it to Fort Benning and have some soldiers go through it. And that was a little more successful. So it's you've got to match what you're trying to do with the population that you're giving it to. And this is a, a big problem with a lot of studies in VR. The population that they use for these studies is typically undergraduate psychology students who are 20 something. And that is not always the population that is going to appreciate what you're trying to do in your virtual world. So um, there's a lot of factors at play. So, you know, who's going in? How do you prime them? You know, do you prime them in a way that they're going to understand what they're supposed to do and, and actually do it correctly? And then what are the cues that you give them in a virtual world? What are the attractors that make them look here or turn around? You know, is it a sound? Is it, um, is it some, something that's moving over there? Uh, is it contrast? Is it color blinking? Whatever it is, you have to have ways to draw, draw them through the experience. So they're going where you want them to go because virtual reality environments are kind of free will. You can look anywhere, you can go anywhere. So how do you get them to do what you want? In narrative media like cinema, we do that by the director saying what they want and they cut and they make the transitions and you don't have any say over it. But in virtual reality, we have subtler things that we can use that direct people through that experience the way we want them to go. Of the 300 people we put through uh, that piece at the Institute for Creative Technologies, it was called DarkCon, and it was part of the Sensory Environments Evaluation Project. Of the 300 people we put in there, every person went the path that we wanted them to go. And we had other things like we told them if you go if you if you if you go out in the in the land there are landmines and you're probably going to get blown up. Um, we thought people would go try that anyway. Nobody did. We had a village up on the hill, so if they just wanted to you know explore the landscape, if they went up to the village, they would be seen. And somebody would come out, you know, shouting in, in Serbian, I think it was, or whatever we had. Um, and you would, you would get shot and your whole world would go red and tilt over. But nobody went up there either. So we built a whole village for nothing. Um, everybody went the way we wanted them to go through. Now we, you know, we did constrain them in, we had a tunnel they had to go through. There were not many ways out of the tunnel. And then when you got out of the tunnel, there was only one place to hide behind this wrecked car to, to be able to observe what was going on across the river. So we used a lot of tricks like that, and we documented all those tricks. They've been published a few places. Mm -hmm. um, but those are the kinds of things that everybody's been finding out since the Oculus launched. You know, the, these are things that people are finding out these same techniques and tricks, and it's starting to really make very, um, very excellent 
virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it may still not be emotionally matched to the person, but there is a lot of understanding about what works in VR these days. Yeah, you're talking about one of the challenges of being in VR versus film is that you have no control over the frame. You don't have the ability to tell the person to say, okay, look this way. So you have to trick them, right? You have to light something up, create a pathway, allow people to follow it and really make something that allows for people to be guided on this journey. And so you, because they can go and like in real life, they can do whatever they want. And so some of that is, but it seems like they're more, more reliant to follow directions and, and versus try to explore. Sometimes in video games, I think maybe the population gamers uh, younger gamers will tendency try to break your game as quick as possible. <laughs> I've I've had that experience where I build things and they immediately find a. You test it, you develop on it, you find all these bugs out. You're like, it's perfect, it's solid. And five minutes in, the new gamer finds a way to break your game. It's just as it goes. But I think maybe some of these military people might be a bit more um, apt to following directions and and trying yeah. to achieve the mission. Maybe. I mean, we, it was never really released to them. So we had a very much smaller population. We tested it on at the, at the military base, but um, in terms of breaking games, that used to be one of my tasks was to see if I could break the worlds that were being done for whatever purpose. And one of them I got to try and I just had so much fun with it was the Disney Aladdin ride back in the nineties. And Man, I I drove that carpet right off the world. <laughs> they didn't know that could happen. <laughs> I remember that one back in the day. You had the giant headset, right? And you had it, it, the thing right? that looked like a an alligator headset. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. You put it on like this, and you're like, oh, is this gonna crush my skull? And you kind of <laughs> use it. Yes, I remember that very. It was so amazing, though, being able to ride on that ride. It was incredible. Um, so then, I mean, looking at you talking about emotionally evocative experiences, what you're saying, it depends on the priming, it depends on the population, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. And then you said there's so many things that are currently being rediscovered because people have more access to it. They can kind of, they can, you know, rediscover these, these, these patterns of behavior. So, um, for you though, I mean, I, you, you've, you've gone down an interesting path because you went from. Virtual reality, because it's so, so funny, you were uh, over at the Creative Technology uh, uh, Institute over there, because I'm, I'm friends with Skip. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe you got Skip his job. Was that the case? Was that- um, I, I hired Skip from the geriatric center at USC. I don't even remember the circumstances now, because, you know, you know, what do you do when you're hiring a rock star? Um, (laughs) So he, you know, he had already done a a number of things with uh, Virtually Better and other companies. I mean, he's just so brilliant in this area. And he took virtual reality from a novelty thing into a, a really bona fide therapy. And certainly that was starting in the 90s. Um, the Institute didn't get started until about 2000. So in 2000, the world didn't, didn't even care about VR anymore. You know, I always say it slithered back into the research labs. And that's where we really learned what it could do, what it can do to your brain, you know, what it can do to your um, feelings and your emotions and how it can make things better. And Skip was a genius at that. So, um, you know, really looking at this imaginal therapy that didn't work for most veterans because some some of them just couldn't imagine the trauma that 
had put them into their PTSD mode. But by using the virtual reality to kind of gradually reintroduce them to what was going on in, in that time when they suffered the trauma, you were able to reach a bigger population. So it was, it was really brilliant and it's been used a lot since. I remember when he got it into 60 VA facilities and everybody just went, wow, you know, we really, it's not a toy anymore. It's definitely something purposeful that is, has got benefit for humanity. Absolutely. And when I was trying it on, you know, I haven't, even, I'm not a soldier, I haven't been to war, I haven't tried any of that stuff. But when I, when I was at the, uh, the uh, Institute over there with Skip, and he was demoing it to me, and there was the, the guns going off and the helicopters going off and all those things I I could feel my heart race because it was, you could feel those emotions about being evoked and having that feeling. And it's really, it's really interesting as humans, in order to get past our PTSD, we have to re-experience it. We have to desensitize ourselves to it. We have to we have to kind of get to that place to kind of dig through that kind of muck to get through to the other other side. Um, how else have you seen? Like you talked about it. Now that we know the effects it has on the brain and how it can affect our emotions, has there anything else you said? What do we now know about the effects that it has on the brain? Because you said that this is the things that we figured out. Are there things that may be uncommon knowledge that people may not be aware of the effects that VR has on the brain? It can certainly be used to calm down, you know, or put you in different brain states, uh, different ways to entrain your brain to different kinds of EEG waves. Uh, products like TRIP, which take you through a uh, a series of steps to help you focus. And they ask you at the beginning, how are you feeling along these different vectors? And then you go through some of their focusing tools that are really designed with knowledge of how our brain works. And you get to the other side and people always feel better. So they've, they've actually proven that. And what's amazing about something like TRIP is you, they, there's, they won't even say how many users they've got, but you know, tens of thousands and maybe over a hundred thousand users that are giving the data back of how it is affecting them. Um, and part of that is by having a subscription and continual use of it. So they know that it works for some people because they are continuing to use it two, three times a week. So we're just starting to know though, it, what it is that affects our brain. Um, and part of it, I think, I say we've always underestimated the brain's plasticity and brain, VR is one great way to unlock it. Now there's a danger in that too, because we're not, you know, we're playing with fire. We're not mm -hmm. sure what is going to have what effect on a particular person because of their background or their mental state. But if we can start teasing that out over the next few years, I think we can see the value of VR for all kinds of mitigations. Um, PTSD is one of the interesting ones because there are more civilians with PTSD from trauma of you know, being shot or being in a school shooting or you know, being attacked. There are more people with PTSD in the civilian realm, and there are some places that are starting to look at giving therapists the tools to deal with civilians who have a PTSD from some trauma. And that, if we can start healing those people, I think we'll do humanity a huge service. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, 
giving people the tools to, to be able to heal themselves and or those you know, uh, transformative technologies is incredible. And I mean, Skip's really pioneered a lot of that and, and, and Trip as well. I mean, I, I do love Trip. It's a, it's a great application. It's cool to see how much they've evolved along the way. I know anytime you have to trailblaze a path because when you first try virtual reality, at least in the space, like it's for games, it's for, it's for fun, it's for entertainment. Trying to use it as a therapy or trying to use it as a, as a way to shift your mental state or your moods, you kind of have to, trailblaze a path and have people say that you know, go from crazy <laughs> to prolific to oh yeah of course it's obvious right that pattern of moving along that phase is i think we're still in that kind of prolific area where people don't really aren't fully wrapping their heads around the possibilities of it especially when you start stacking these technologies you're talking about having the heart rates and the eegs and the visual the visualization i imagine that a lot of this leads up to some of the work that you've done, even with the XPRIZE and the ANA and the avatars and being able to have remote humans at a distance, being able to connect. Do you want to talk just a little bit about some of the, what, what got you from uh, splicing together hard mode Photoshop to <laughs> working for XPRIZE avatar? That's an interesting path. Could you please kind of lead us up to that? Well, I, yeah, as I said, I did a, a lot of work at the Institute for Creative Technologies, and then I spun off my own company called All These Worlds uh, that was had a few different clients, one of which was ICT because they had to have me finish some stuff, uh, but also NASA. So we looked at the use of virtual reality for mitigating social isolation and sensory deprivation on long duration space missions. So we put it in a habitat with, um, with six scientists who were isolated and couldn't go outside for a full year. And we found that it actually did ease the sense of uh, loneliness and isolation that they had. And this was before the pandemic. So, you know, when the pandemic came along, we, we all knew we had to have ways to, to kind of connect that weren't necessarily physical. And one of the ways to do that, of course, is with an avatar in a social VR. So avatars have always been really uh, of interest to me for, as a research thing. And I still think that there's a lot of work we need to do there. One of the things that is not obvious to people is that the 20 somethings today grew up having many different kinds of avatars in things like Club Penguin or Minecraft. And it was their only kind of free reign socialization kind of thing because parents don't let you out of the front yard anymore. So these kids, know how to uh, show themselves in different personas for different things with these avatars. So I was a huge proponent of avatar technology and the many ways we could use it, you know, as a, a business kind of look when you're going into a business meeting or as a giant dragon in something like Second Life or these little blocky guys in, in Minecraft. So I've been looking at that for a long time. And then XPRIZE called me and said, we've got this competition we're gonna run called Avatar. And I went, oh, okay, what does that mean? And they said, it's about a robotic avatar. And I went, oh, okay, so uh, what does that mean? 
And I really started thinking about what can these robotic avatars do for us that a digital avatar cannot do? And this is the essence of that prize. It is to give you a physical embodiment in a remote location. So it is everything a digital avatar could be, plus the fact that you can get haptic sensations back across that two-way uh, connection. You can get smells across, you can get wind across. So if I'm somewhere and I'm feeling a strong gust of wind, the person operating the robot avatar back at a distance could feel that strong gust of wind. Now we don't have the technology to do all of this yet. Um, we started with existing robot technology. So when the competition opened, it was, hey, make an avatar out of your robot, whatever that robot is, and see if you can use that to connect two people at a distance. And I put together a judging panel of people who are just really smart, everybody from haptics experts to VR experts to um, psychology people to uh, people who were looking at these issues of social isolation. And through a couple years of really discussing this prize, the, the sort of the, the fulfillment of the prize started to emerge. So we wanted to make sure that these kinds of robotic avatars could facilitate that human to human connection. Now they can also be used for a human to pilot a robotic avatar in a dangerous place where you're not gonna send a physical human or to do things out in space. So there's a lot of ways to think about these avatars, but what we centered on, especially since the pandemic was right there in our face was how do I hug my grandmother in her care facility? And there are people working on huggable robots. Most people wouldn't hug a robot because of liability issues right now. But if you could at least talk to somebody, hear somebody, um, really feel like they're, they're there in some way, then you're starting along that path to where these kinds of robotic avatars could be useful. Mm. So as you said, we just finished that competition last week uh, in Long Beach. If you go to YouTube and, and look for XPRIZE Avatar, ANA Avatar, uh, you'll find a lot of videos. You'll find 17 and a half hours of live streaming that we did during the two days of the actual finals testing. This, this competition was funded by the Japanese airline ANA. And people want to know, well, why? Why would they do this? I mean, they first wanted to do teleportation, but we know that's not going to happen in the next few years. So the, this idea of teleporting into a physical robot to take yourself somewhere else was where the competition settled. And the airline says that their business is connecting people. It's not putting people in tin cans in the sky to fly somewhere then only 6% of the world's population even flies. It's not a huge amount wow. of the population. So are there ways that we can connect people that don't require them to you know, burn all that carbon or, or you know, get up in this thing and spend lots of money? So it's really early. Mm -hmm. Don't know where this will go or how many years it will take. I would, I would expect at least a decade. All of the solutions that were brought to the XPRIZE finals, there were 17 teams, 
every robot was different and none of them you'd want to hug quite yet. Um, but that wasn't the point. The point was how can that physical operator station be set up so that when the robot is feeling something elsewhere, it's being conveyed back to you. How do you do two-way haptics like that? Yeah. And it that was a big challenge for most of the teams. We had a lot of teams drop out because that was not something that it was in their game plan or something that they felt like they could really implement. Yeah, that's a challenge. That's a hard one to, to, to pass the data back and forth because not only are you giving inputs, you're you're receiving you're you're receiving inputs back from the system, which is which is which is really challenging. I know that we were talking before the podcast, and I was actually because I've put on virtually hackathons back in the day, and we talked about possibly doing one with XPRIZE, with the ANA, with you, with the avatar systems, and that was really it seems really complex. I think it's super easy to build virtual reality applications. It's software. It's mm -hmm. known. There's a, there's a quantity there that's like, okay, you use a game engine, you kick it out. But when you're trying to reinvent the way touch happens, these different senses, like we have visual down and audio down pretty well, but haptics right. and other ones are incredibly difficult. It's incredibly yeah. difficult. I've we're at the beginning of, yeah, we're at the beginning of, of good haptics technology. And there are, the thing is, there's like a dozen different types of haptics. So there's different kinds of touch and we have, you know, different kinds of sensations, depending on where on the body those touches happen. Our fingertips are very sensitive and there are uh, ways to get from what the robot's feeling on its fingertips back to something the operator is wearing at a distance. Um, but other ones are really, really hard because, you know, right now, most of the haptics are vibro, vibro tactile, yeah. you know, like the Tesla suit or some of these uh, thumper backpacks. And that doesn't translate into a human to human touch very well. Not quite. I've, I've seen one example and it, when I tried it out and when I tried it out, I was like, it reminded me of old school VR and the fidelity being, it was almost awesome. And I don't know, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but I was, it was years ago. Back in my day, no, I was at, I was at SIGGRAPH, <laughs> right? I was, I was at SIGGRAPH years ago. It was like 2000, probably 17 or something like that. And there was, you know, you know what ultra haptics is, mm -hmm. right? Right. So, so anybody that doesn't know, it's, it's a, it's a speaker that can send, I believe some sort of sound that, that ultra is sound ultrasound that, that when it hits you, you get a sensation of touch. Right. And so, and so the it's known as ultra haptics and I was at SIGGRAPH and there was a Japanese man who didn't speak, speak a lick of English at the time. And I didn't speak any Japanese at the time, but he had two boxes. And in one box was the, was a thing with an array, mm -hmm. which is a bunch of different speakers inside of here, but you could put your hand through it. And there was another box right next to it. And then inside there, he had a thing uh, uh, called Pepper's Ghost Effect, which is mm -hmm. a way if you go to Disneyland and you've seen the ghost at the Haunted Mansion, that's how you see those holograms. It's a way to do kind of uh, easy AR effects. But he put a ball inside the center, right, in, 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 in his box. And in my box, I saw the hologram of the ball. And then when I go to poke the ball with my physical finger, the ultra haptics would then translate that back to him and it would cause his ball to move which would allow me to see it, but then my finger and my box would be hit by the ultra haptics. And so, and I was, 
it was still a really big screen door effect. But I imagine it was like, man, if this thing was only 1,000 times smaller, it would be getting down to that pixel level. And it just wasn't quite there yet. And since I was like, this has got to be huge. This has got to go everywhere. But since then, I've never seen anybody use that. Have you seen anybody do yeah, that. I remember that exhibit at SIGGRAPH and um, it was one I actually took pictures of because I was impressed. And I've, I've gone over to Japan and seen some more of that kind of haptic yeah. stuff. I believe, and there's some announcement this past week or so by a company, I believe it's called Ultra Haptics. So I think they're starting to get a, a little bigger handle on it, and uh, I I don't know I don't know enough to talk about okay. it technically, but I again, that's coming from one direction. The vibrotactile yeah. stuff is coming from another direction. The SynTouch electronic skin comes from another uh, approach, and all of these things are going to somehow be integrated so that we get that full picture of touch. And we don't have it yet. So we are, it's like, it's like the 190 pixels. So we don't have a good resolution for, uh, for touch at this point in time, but there are a lot of brilliant minds working on it. Mm. There's a conference next week or in December, early December called Smart Haptics, where a lot of people will be talking exactly about that. The research uh, hours being put into this are just amazing and so we're gonna see advances it's it's super fascinating and it's also when you stack it together in a way that it works it can be mind-blowing uh dr brandon spiegel has a book called vrx and then inside the book he has an example of actually having an out-of-body experience hmm. where the haptics hit his body and he has a vr headset on but because there's a camera wow. behind him and they do haptics on his body. They then juxtaposition and put him behind his own body. He feels like he's forcefully ripped out of it. He feels like he has an out-of-body experience using a combination of haptics and, and VR. And he goes, and he felt like, oh my God, I'm not even, that, that's not even me. That, that sense of disassociation, your body can't even deal with the fact of this, you know, not being able to put two and two together. So you just gotta, you gotta get all those pieces together. And I, I, I do feel like we're, we're, we are as a humanity, as a civilization, we are always playing with fire. We don't know <laughs> any of this. We're constantly setting ourselves on fire. What, what do you see in terms of, cause I mean, you've, you've been through the through line of where we're at with this. What do you think is around the corner with this stuff? What do you see coming up? Probably not teleportation, as you said, it's not, not quite there yet. But what do you see as just around the corner in terms of this technology being viable? I think we have to get to a point where the technology is stable for a while for uh, mass adoption. I mean, right now it's so esoteric and so costly and you know, there aren't that many headsets out there even with the Quest 2. Um, and the technology changes every year. You gotta buy new stuff. Uh, you know, I've got a I've got a graveyard of headsets behind me <laughs> from just the last yeah. five years. So that is not conducive to mass adoption. So it's got to be easier to use. It may not be a headset. It may be, you know, things like Mojo Vision, this sort of uh, contact lens that they're working mm. on. Um, I don't know exactly what it will be, but until it's as easy to use as your phone, 
it's not going to get that kind of mass adoption. I do think even with the technologies we have now, we're going to see more and more uses for it, you know, whether it's for pain mitigation. So, you know, like the burn patients who are distracted so that they're not having to take as much morphine during bandage changes and that type of thing. There are really good medical uses for VR. There are really good meditation uses for VR. There's great games for VR. Um, but again, they're all very niche. And if uh, we get it out there, like Skip's doing with the veterans, like many medical centers are doing for pain distraction, then it's going to find those kinds of uses. We need more. And one, one area I would like to talk about a little bit mm -hmm. is you know, what artists are doing to push this technology. Sure. Because from the very beginning, the artists did stuff that the engineers, the tech people never thought of. So in the early days of VR, some of the most amazing work that came out was from people who were doing it for an artistic purpose or for a narrative purpose or for a drama purpose. So people like Brenda Laurel with Placeholder uh, that was done at the Banff Institute. So Banff sponsored nine different VR artists, or they weren't VR artists then, but they were afterwards, to come and use their facilities, their engineers, their computers, and make really interesting VR. So we saw some of the most experimental but meaningful VR come out of that program. And there were your artists in Europe and South America who were also just grabbing onto this technology and pushing it and pushing it. And I remember talking to people at the research lab I was at, can't we do this? Can't we do that? And they would like, no, well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can do that. Um, so artists, uh, and this is another reason to go back to the Five Arts Festival, yeah. pushing for experimentation. You're not always going to succeed, but those things that show promise that are meaningful to people are going to be adopted. And, and that just enhances the whole vocabulary of this new medium. Mm. So I, I think artists are, are really good at pushing that and we need more, more artists doing that kind of stuff. And until it becomes meaningful for people, they're not going to get in it. You know, there's a, there's a lot of statistics on people who've bought headsets and then they put them away after three weeks and they don't use them anymore. Well, that's because there's nothing that is working for them. So once you've played a few games, you know, maybe Beat Saber is going to keep you in your exercise routine um, and Trip might keep you in a meditation routine. But what about the rest of the people? You know, what's there? Is there education we can put in there? Is there connectivity kinds of things that we can do to enhance global connectivity? All of these things, you know, is there is there a way to bring more insight into climate change or some of the other UN goals for sustainability that they have? And there are people starting to work on, on this now. So one more thing I should mention yeah. is the Virtual World Society which was, is an organization of VR for good or XR for good or any immersive thing for good um, that was founded by Tom Furness. And Tom Furness was one of the original founders of this technology. So back in the late 60s and 70s, 
He was a, a young pilot at, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base who was working on heads-up displays for fighter pilots because they couldn't look down and see all of these different instrument panels. So they had to have it up in front of them while they were flying the plane. And that became the basis for AR. So uh, you know, about the same time that Ivan Sutherland was working uh, for the military doing his first heads-up display uh, in, in the sort of Damocles is what we usually call it. So back that far, there were, there were visionaries that were looking at the future. And of course, Ivan Sutherland wrote about the ultimate display, which was actually, instead of messing with pixels, we're messing with atoms. And we're putting together a chair you can sit in. We're putting together something you can actually feel and touch. Well, Tom has started the Virtual World Society, which is free for anybody to join. And we are looking at projects that are doing that kind of good. I happen to be on the board. Uh, there's some other really wonderful people on the board. We give out uh, an a award, a couple of awards every year for people that are really breaking uh, boundaries in this technology to use it for good. So I would encourage everybody to go to the virtualworldsociety.org and join and become part of the community. Uh, we're looking for ideas for projects. Uh, I you know, don't know where it's going to go. Um, we're just sort of getting to a critical mass of people right now, but we'd love to hear ideas from, from people on what they think they could do to make this meaningful for a larger part of humanity. Absolutely. I mean, th that's the whole thing. We are literally designing our own future. We are building it. We are creating the technology and we are going to now, we are not only creating technology, we are living inside of the technology. And so it's kind of in order to get to build our own utopia, we have to actually get together and say, okay, this is an intention. So I love that. Um, it was called the world summit.org. Can you say that address again? Virtual World Virtual Society. Virtual B World Society. BWS, yeah. Virtualworldsociety.org. And that's incredible because, yeah, being able to create that. And it's so funny. Artists are, are, are wonderful and terrible for engineers, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't have limits. They have no <laughs> limits. And, and an engineer is like, how do I make that? How, what line of code do I need to write? And how many lines of code do I need to make that happen? But when you imagine, I often say that like entertainment has sold us a fantasy that then technology tries to live up to. And so these artists imagine these things and the engineers have the grind to try to make it happen. But you need to be able to push those limits. You need to, it, you, it's very hard to both imagine it and then create it at the same time. So I think that's incredible. Um, have you, uh, we talked about these amazing use cases for VR, for VR for good, or uh, XR for good. Um, have, have you seen any ones that are really innovative or anything that stands out to you that kind of makes you go, wow, uh, I didn't realize that was possible. Anything that's anything that stands out for you? Well, I think there are, there are a lot of them. And I think, again, we're not, we're not totally sophisticated on them yet. There are yeah. some really interesting things for education. Mm -hmm. um, there are people doing things that are not even practical, but make you think. So artists like Kevin Mack, who are putting these sort of um, uh, beneficial sentient beings into their virtual reality procedural artwork, they'll just blow wow. your mind, but really putting us on a path to where we may have these kinds of experiences where we do have these 
amazing beings in there that can make us think about things in a different way, in a future-oriented way, and, and a future we want, not a dystopian future, but a future that can be beneficial for yeah. people, that can give people uh, more creativity, more intrinsic motivations rather than, oh, I've got to survive to eat tomorrow. You know, I've, I, I can, if, I, if all the needs are met, if we can mm -hmm. get to that point in humanity, then we can start creating the creative hum, human race. And I think that that is going to be a future I want to live in. Well, on that note, you know, um, what is your, because I mean, you've been, you've, you've been in VR for a minute. You've been here for a second or a two. A long minute. <laughs> a, very, a, a, lo a bit of a minute. And I mean, and you've been in the space from, yeah, from the, uh, the, this, the society to the Avatar ANA and all that fun stuff. What is you, what's your personal, what's your holy grail? What's your, what keeps you going? What's your flag in the sand? What is the thing that, that you're doing all of this that, that keeps you going? Do you have a flag in the sand that you hope to achieve by putting all your effort in the space or what is it for you? I think it is creating experiences for people that take you out of the ordinary and into something really extraordinary. I, I, I want to believe that we can give people extraordinary experiences. Mm -hmm. I believe they need to be multi-sensory. I need to they need to be seamless. They need to be intuitive to get into. Um, it's one of the reasons that I, I'm spending a lot of time working on scent because I think scent is amazing. It's harder than haptics right now. It's actually not hard, but because it's a chemical sense and because you don't wanna spray chemicals at people, we have to look at other ways to provide scent in a safe way, but a way that is that enhances the experience. And a funny thing about scent is, and I've used it in a number of my VR works, is people don't even realize they're smelling something unless it's really like a forest burning. Um, if you have subtle things, they don't really get it, but their memories are stronger afterwards. So I did a series called The Memory Stairs. The first experience was, so these were eight experiences from before birth to near death. The first one was before birth, so there was no smell, but everything came through water and you heard two heartbeats and you saw very shadowy things like out in the distance. And then the next one was, uh, I called it just new and you were a baby in a crib and it, there was the smell of baby powder was everywhere. And then as these faces came in and out of, of, of you in the crib, you could smell your mother's perfume. It was my mother's perfume. So it was, it was really meaningful to me. And people did say that, that it brought back those pre-linguistic memories. Even if they didn't remember the scent, they were like, I was taken back to a time when, you know, I don't even have words for it. But, uh, and I think that can help unlock some of the Maybe it, it can be used to help with trauma and maybe it can be used to help with just better connectivity to your grandparents or whatever. I don't know how it's going to be used, but I want to keep pushing those things that allow more of our, our good parts of our humanity to come out. So 
I don't know what that'll be tomorrow. You know, I would like to get the scent color that I invented uh, 15 years ago out there in the public. Um, and I think it's it's easy enough to use and not dangerous that it could start making some inroads into multi-sensory VR. I don't think we're far enough along in multi-sensory VR, but with haptics and scent and all of the psychological things that I talked about that we know to kind of steer you through a space in a positive way, that there's so many things now, there's such a deep toolbox that we can use that I would like to see more people get, get using that. And it's, been great since the Oculus because never have so many eyes and hearts and minds been focused on VR. But I think we tend to go for the low hanging fruit. We go for the game. We go for the, you know, the the zombie thing, or we go for Richie's plank, which is uh, an interesting piece that we could talk about because it was originally a, a psychological study. Yeah. But we're not pushing for those things that advance us and advance the way we think and feel and connect. And I'd like to see more of that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's low hanging fruit. It's the jump scare. It's the thing that we, it's, it's so easy to get a reaction that, that everyone uses it, but then you, you know, it's not meaningful. It's, it's easy to, it's, it's evocative, but not meaningful versus what you want is something that is both evocative and meaningful that can have some sort of positive impact. It, and then, and the sense can be, uh, it's a delicate, it's a delicate art. We'll put it that way. I, mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've seen it in the, the years I've been in space and originally it was very difficult. Uh, more recently, it's actually, it's, it's getting better at dialing it in, which is pretty, which is pretty cool to see. Um, with all these things that you're talking about doing, right, with, with where you're going with this and taking people in these extraordinary places with senses and with, with virtual and all that, what would, I, what would you consider to be the dragon? Like what for you is the thing that it's, it's seemingly so difficult to be able to overcome that it maybe feel impossible? Getting money to do these things. <laughs> I mean, I really think no, it is. It is valid, a huge valid. dragon because if I if I was of a certain gender, age, whatever, I in the last five six years I could have gotten funding, and um, that doesn't really pan out for a lot of female founders. Uh, it's really unusual. There are some that are very successful. Um, but especially if you have something that isn't going to scale to millions, you know, like a scent collar, it's really hard to get the funding. And, and yet, if you have the funding and you get that jump start into that technology development, then you're, you're on firm footing to go and get that deployed out there where many people can use it. So I think, you know, for me, the hardest thing has been you're either you're either good at getting funding or you're good at coming up with new ideas. Um, it's hard to put those two things together. It's even harder if you uh, are an, you know, not of the the right um, sort of look and feel that the investors are going for. Investors are sometimes they're very smart and sometimes they're very uh, dependent on you know what's my ROI going to be and can you give me that in two years? Well. We're looking at technologies that are not a two-year win. 
These are things that have to develop over time. Um, if investors had been involved in getting the first computers going, it, you know, I think we wouldn't have them today. Um, so you really have to balance the long-term desires, effects, and things you're going for with that short-term, what can money do for me now? And, and get someone that believes in the long picture, the, the things that are not going to happen in one year. So that's a hard thing. It's, it's incredibly hard. I mean, no matter your age, your gender, or anything, I mean, to, to get money from investors is very difficult, um, especially in this time, in this economical times. I have, I have friends that are Y Combinator grads, mm -hmm. uh, males, younger, uh, ex from Stanford, working products. You know, and and they, it's still incredibly difficult because people want this. I want a hundred percent guarantee. Show me that you have a profitable company that you're making money and that you don't need my money. And then I'll give you money. It's like, it, but that's not how it works. And, and it is very difficult. Getting money is a skill. I was talking to like Nanea Reeves on the podcast from trip and one of her superpowers is getting money. Yes, she's, it is. She's, she's really, good really, that. really good at it. And it's like, it's like, congratulations. You, you're able to do something that most of the population can't because it is, it is a art. It is a science. It is something that is very difficult, but it's also needed because you, that is the lifeblood of any company. And and that you need to you need to be able to find someone that's willing to take that risk and be able to put money back into that for the benefit, right? And and it's it's hard to find. It's super. I I I feel for you, and I feel for any anybody in this space that, especially for artists, when they want to make something that has, they want to give an emotion, they want to give a feeling, but you can't always quantify that. Right. It's, it's a very, it's, it's a very difficult thing. So I only left out of the fact that I know how difficult it is to actually do and raise and be inside. I, I, and it was such a true, it was such a true dragon, you know, cause some people go, Oh my, I'm the dragon or something else. Right. But you, you nailed it. So it was great. Um, so thank you for that. And I, I, let's say this is, um, I know we're at the top of the hour now. Um, is there anything else? It's been amazing talking with you. It's been so fun. Is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you? Well, we've talked a lot. You know, we've covered a lot of things yeah. today. Um, I would like to see better distribution channels for these meaningful VRs. I think that's a, a really hard thing right now because you either have to go somewhere and certainly the location-based entertainment places could be hotspots for this. Uh, right now they're, they're more into novelty and the, you know, sort of the shock value of, of, uh, or fun value. So I would like to see more places where people can go to try this stuff. You know, if they, if they don't have a headset at home, because I think, that first time you get in VR, as you said, it's it's a profound experience. I tried to teach a class to some art students and it was VR explorations and they just weren't getting it. And I finally said, how many of you have ever tried VR? And none of them had tried VR. And this was during the pandemic. So, you know, it was a Zoom class. I was teaching them on Mozilla Hubs. And so I said, all right, we're putting on our masks. We're going to campus. I'm bringing my headset and we're going to each do VR. So I put them through Richie's plank and trip. And nice. boy, boy, that told them what VR was. So, you know, it, there are still 
many, many people who have not tried this technology. And so it's, it's not out there yet. And um, it has to get out there for more people to understand it and know what it can do. So I think, you know, that's my, my kind of final thing. Let's figure out a way to get more people involved in this and get more creators involved in this and get more distribution channels out so that we start to make a dent in the population of the world that hasn't tried this. Because once people know what it can do and they start clamoring for it, that's when it takes off. Yeah. We're still a ways away. Yeah, they got to taste it to know it, right? That's the that's the that's the challenge. Um, Jackie, it's been incredible, um, and I totally agree with you on this one. It, 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 the world needs more of these evocative, meaningful experiences, and they need to be able to get it to more people. And the more that we can make this more widespread, the more impact, the more opportunity for artists and other people to have an impact using this medium. So, um, I think Absolutely. it's incredible. Is um, with that being said, uh, if people want to get a hold of you or find out more of your work, how do they do that? Um, I have a couple websites. So if they go to mori.org, M-O-R-I-E.org, um, that is a, kind of a repository where I throw lots of my artwork mm -hmm. um, and a, a few things about VR there. Uh, that master's thesis that is now in a VR house is in there. I think there's a, a little video of the VR piece. Um, so mori.org will, will get to me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm, uh, I also have my company website, which is all these worlds, LLC.com. And that shows some of the projects and maybe, you know, some of the talks I've given, uh, some of the papers I've written are all documented on that site. And, um, if anybody wants to try the, when pixels were precious, it is in VR chat and you can just okay. get into VR chat and Google or not Google, but search for, <laughs> yeah, Google has become the go-to word yes, for search. Yes. Yeah, I got um, it. just search for either Mori or pixels and you should see it pop up. It's a public world. So uh, again, it's, you know, it's a very simple thing. Um, you can make too many of those uh, talks about the images um, talk at the same time. So we haven't foolproofed it yet, but you can at least see the pictures and, and um, hear what I have to say about them. So that's a few ways to reach me. <laughs> I love it, uh, Jackie, it's awesome. It sounds like so much fun. Um, uh, if, especially if anybody that already has a VR headset, pop in the VR chat. Um, it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing world. You can bring some friends with you recruit some VR chat friends to come check out Jackie's project inside of there. So Jackie, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the store uh, on the show. Uh, have a blessed and beautiful day and I'll see you on the other side. Thanks Dylan. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care now. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the heroes of reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes or to apply to be on the show. If you're interested about becoming a coach in VR, check out Dylan's Becoming a Master Coach in Virtual Reality course at heroesofreality.com slash VRcoach. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the other side.